Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you on Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, as well as with video here on YouTube. All right, this uh, week we're going to talk about a actually pretty serious subject. Uh, it's not, you know, it's it's the subject of suicide. And uh, this might seem out of left field, but I'm going to explain to you how this came across my plate, how it is that I'm standing here talking to you about this this week and why it is that I feel like I have something to, constructive and useful to say about the topic. Um, I have been, as you guys know, and as many of you who have been supporting my show and my channel have been helping me to do, I have been engaged in a whole lot of research and learning over the last this year, really, end of last year and this year, uh, on a wide range of topics, all having to do with or all coming from or springing from trying to understand the, um, the neurology, the biology, the sociology, the, you know, all of the various disciplines that sort of feed into understanding destructive cults, extremism, totalist groups, high control groups, what is it that, you know, differentiates a destructive cult from just a regular old cult? <laughs> uh, and I know that's a very loaded word, so I'm just using that sort of jokingly. But, um, but what you know, what is it about ourselves that makes us prone to falling for deceptive practices or undue influence? What is it about leaders or people, you know, con men, cult leaders, shenanigan makers? What is it about them that drives them and makes them do what they do? Uh, and in the process of learning about all this, it, I've gone down many avenues, and I'm sure I will continue to go down many more. And I have just been having the most amazing time and definitely a very cathartic time. Uh, things have come up along the way that I definitely was not looking for, didn't expect, that hit me personally as to my own experiences with Scientology, coming out of Scientology, etc., how I treated others, how others treated me. I mean, I'm really, you know, I'm, 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 I'm kind of out of the whole f mode now of, okay, let's just talk about all the horrible things that these groups do to their followers. I mean, that's definitely going to, I'll definitely be continuing to talk about that as needed. But I'm much more interested in the broader picture because, as all of you know who have followed my podcast or channel for any length of time, um, you know, coming out of Scientology, learning about that, talking about that, certainly very, very interesting and necessary and, and uh, you know, very necessary for society at large to learn about these groups. But I'm finding that all the things that I was talking about with Scientology have such more broader applications and uses. And I think that's kind of how I got to this place. Specifically, I've been um, watching a lecture series by, uh, this is actually kind of funny, I think you guys might, might find the story kind of interesting how this all sort of accidentally came across my plate. Um, I was watching a uh, Stanford uh, University professor named Robert Sapolsky as uh, a neuroendocrinologist, and he studied uh, out in the field in Africa, baboons and various things for decades, and really, really smart guy. And I've been learning quite a bit watching the, the video, the lectures that he gave, 
in a course called Human Behavioral Biology, uh, which covers everything I was just talking about. All of that is is covered in one degree or another in that lecture series, which was just, uh, you know, I was just like, wow, what a gold mine to find that available on YouTube of all places. And I will post a link to the playlist of that uh, course lecture series on the show notes for the podcast here at sensiblyspeaking.com and in the um, you can link to that from the description section of this video on YouTube. So going through that, I'm learning about genetic factors. I'm learning about epigenetic factors. I'm learning about uh, DNA. I'm learning about, you know, root core biology and what that biology has to do with our development, our brain's development, you know, how we think, why we think the way we do, how we're prone to develop in certain ways, and how some of us are prone to develop in other ways, depending on our genetics, our background, our upbringing, even our fetal life. <laughs> what happens to us while we're still, I, what, in utero, I guess, right? Uh, the, all of that has something to do with why you are the person you are now. I find that endlessly fascinating. However, it's awful hard, it's awfully hard to talk about that in a um, broadly useful and understandable way when you start talking about, you know, RNA and, and uh, transcription factors and, and how DNA is structured and stuff. I mean, you start losing people real fast. And I'm not going to, I don't want to go there. One of the reasons why I started my channel way back in the day and have been continuing to, to try to use this, this platform in this way is I wanted to sort of be a bridge between all this, you know, academic knowledge and learning that I'm doing and, and, the, and the general public at large and try to make this stuff kind of interesting and, and, uh, and useful. So... Uh, I'm not going to try to re, you know, I'm not, I'm not studying this stuff so I can just regurgitate it to you. I'm trying to figure out how to make these things um, as broadly useful and applicable as possible. And that's sort of trying to find the bridge between the academic ivory tower knowledge that is amazing knowledge. There are things people know about and are looking into and studying they are way past uh, where I thought they were in some areas and, of course, not anywhere near where I thought they were in other areas. You know, you really, <laughs> I, I just have to say as, from a critical thinking point of view that you really have to read past the headlines when you are being notified on Facebook or Twitter or wherever about some new study that came out. They, you know, the news does this all the time. They're very bad science communicators in many ways, um, not all the time, but sometimes, uh, specifically when they are citing studies and trying to give some conclusion or idea of what the study found or, or what a possible consequence of the study is. And you drill down, and I have found articles that were so bad, so badly written, that the headline was actually the exact opposite of what the study actually found. When you when you drill down into the into what the study actually said, you find out just reading the abstract, you go, "Hey, wait a minute. That's not what the headline said." And it was it was the opposite of that. So, you have to have your critical thinking hat on when you're getting into the area of uh, how science is communicated about and that kind of thing. So, okay, now where was I? So, I've been studying this stuff and I've been trying to figure out how to bridge the ivory tower to the practical, useful, common, everyday sort of sort of stuff. 
while I was this is this is the first time this this happened this little story I'm telling you here this first first time where uh, YouTube's algorithm actually served me amazingly well because while I was watching these Sapolsky lectures and various other podcasts and things that I keep up on and and watch and learn from. Um, YouTube suggested that I watch a video of a guy who was a, a hostage negotiator. His name is Chris Voss, V-O-S-S. And, uh, and he used to be the top international American negotiator guy. He worked in the FBI, and when somebody was kidnapped in some distant foreign land, he was the guy they called to figure out how to negotiate the person's release. You know, they might have this idea in the media that America doesn't negotiate with terrorists. Well, yeah, they do. They definitely do because if they can save American lives and get the person back home, then they're going to try to do that. And uh, that was this guy's job. And it was quite, it's quite interesting. I watched a number of, you know, YouTube had suggested I watch it. And I was like, I, I mean, you know, something, it, it kept coming up. At first I was like, well, that's random. And then it came up again, and then it came up again, and I thought, okay, I gotta, what's up with this, right? Because I'm kind of dimly interested in this. And sure enough, what do I find? I start watching various presentations that this guy, Chris Voss, has done, and I'm finding that what he's saying about negotiation tactics and about how you communicate with people effectively and usefully are all the things, all the knowledge he's got lines up with all the science I'm studying, right? And I've and I've talked about some of this in recent podcasts when I talked about free will, I talked about uh you know just wait a little bit, but the the some of the th- some of the facts and statistics and and information I was citing during that is stuff I've been learning, you know, in the course of this. So I found here in the you know negotiation is not just in hostage negotiation and it's not just in high and business dealings. Negotiation is what you're doing when you do a cult intervention. When you do it right. You know, it does, I've said before, it looks, if you were to watch uh, a cult intervention happen in, in now, in the present, by people who actually know what they're doing, it would look a lot like a conversation. But the conversation is not just some social conversation. There's all kinds of things going on under, underneath the, you know, the, the exterior there of what's happening. And a good uh, cult recovery person or a good cult interventionist is a good negotiator, is somebody who really understands all these principles and points of, of why and how we think and how belief works and how it's structured and how emotion plays into it heavily. And how if you don't account for those things, then you're going to have a failed intervention or just like you would have a failed negotiation or a failed business deal. Very similar tactics. And I was really amazed by that. And I immediately saw the efficacy of using all of this knowledge about persuasion and negotiation and communication, how the neurology and the psychology and even certain sociological principles fit into that and make you a better negotiator, business person, whatever, right, cult interventionist. So all of this kind of is of the same piece, if you follow what I'm saying here in my sort of long-winded background for this, for how I came to this. Because what happened is I started reading this book called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. And um, 
And I was, I'm, I'm floored by it. It's a great book. He takes all these principles and all this information and he uh, coalesces it and collects it into strategies and, and tactics you can use to communicate effectively with other people, right? And get what you want done, but also not screw them over in the process. The thing that I was most impressed by from the number of episodes or, or talks that I watched Chris Voss do was when he said, I knew this was the real deal when he said, look, at the end of the negotiation, at the end of the whole process, which includes the implementation, deal making, all of it, I mean, the whole process, when that's all over, you, the person you've negotiated a deal with should be in a frame of mind where they want to do business with you again. And amazingly enough, and as unbelievable as it might sound, that even includes hostage takers. Because if you negotiate, I mean, think about it for a second, as, as he said, if you negotiate the release of a hostage, then that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to catch the guy who took the hostage. He could get away. They, sometimes that happens. And you might end up, if you're a hostage negotiator, you might end up having to deal with that person again. And if you screw them in the last one, they're not going to let you screw them this time, right? They're going to get you back. And he makes a point about that. Even if it's months later, even if it's years later, whether it's a business deal, whether it's a negotiation with your wife or your spouse or whether or your kids or whether it's a high-end business negotiation or whether it's a hostage situation, doesn't matter. If somebody feels screwed over and that's they're emotionally invested in that situation and they feel like you got the better of them in such a way that you took advantage of them, they're going to try to get you back. It's just a tit for tat, human nature, you know, sort of game that we play. It's how we work. It's really how we're built. Uh, reciprocity is a, is a fundamental core aspect of our personalities and our, and our makeup. So been learning a lot reading this book. And one of the things that I got really interested in was trying to develop in myself a better skill set for this sort of thing. Because uh, if I'm going to advise other people on how to get folks out of destructive cult situations, and I've done a lot of that over the last few years, many, many emails, phone calls, talks with people, concerned family members, concerned friends, even or, you know, in cult recovery even in certain aspects of this, I want to do the best possible job I know how to do. And I want to use all the knowledge and skill set available to me to do it. So one of the things that was a very funny story that Voss tells is that when he first wanted to be a hostage negotiator, uh, he went to the New York hostage negotiation team, and the person who was in charge said, uh, yeah, okay, what skills do you have? Well, I don't really have any. Okay, well, do you have any education in hostage negotiation or anything like that? No. Any experience in it? Well, not really. You know, the guy, Voss, was a SWAT member and FBI agent before this. And she said, okay, well, everybody wants to be in hostage negotiation. Bug off. I don't have time for this. You're not getting in, right? There was only so many open slots, and she wasn't interested in putting him, even putting him in the queue. And he he said, come on, there's got to be something we can do here. <laughs> he starts negotiating with her. <laughs> and she says, look, if, you know, if you're really serious about this, go down to the suicide hotline and go work there for a while and figure some things out and then get back to me. And he went, hmm, all right. 
So he and she told him, "Wow, just get out of my office, right?" I mean, there wasn't there was no more negotiation going to happen there. Well, he went and did that, and he did that for many many months. He learned all kinds of things, and when he went back to her months later, or maybe a year or something later. He said, okay, I'm back. I'd really like to get in the queue. And she was like, yeah, uh, whatever. What have you, why, why now? And he goes, well, you know, you told me to go do the suicide hotline thing. And I did. And she said, you did what? And he said, yeah, I went and did it. And I'm, now I'm here. I've learned all this, all this stuff. And she goes, I have told a thousand people, she said, I've told a thousand people to go do that. And you are only the second person who ever did it. And they talked, and, and uh, he got in line, and he became a hostage negotiator. That was how he did it. And I thought, what a great way to help people, to really make a difference in people's lives, and develop a, a, more of a skill set to be able to help even more people. That was my thinking. So I called around. I live in Denver, Colorado. And I called around to try to find out if there were ways for me to be able to do that kind of work. There are not in Colorado. He was in New York. I guess they had volunteers on those lines uh, with on-the-job training that they gave them. Uh, they don't have that here in Colorado, so I was not able to do that. So instead, I signed up for this two-day workshop to learn as much as I could with, through the only avenue I could find, which was uh, through the, um, the local sheriff's office. They had a program where they were doing a, a workshop on this. And so this week, I went and attended that workshop. I was actually only, it's a two-day workshop, and I was actually only been able to attend the first day. Um, I missed the second day because we had a blizzard, <laughs> and I couldn't get there on the second day. So I'm going to try to finish it up in May and then proceed from there to see what other, you know, whether the ways are there that I can help in that way, in that, in that world. And um, so that's, that's another thing that's happening behind the scenes here in Sheltonland. And I thought you guys might find that whole story kind of interesting, but it is how we arrive here now where I'm doing this podcast to talk about uh, this whole topic. I learned a great deal. It was, an, it was a full-day uh, seminar where we covered the um, theory, attitudes. We did a, sort of an attitude assessment of our own views on the topic how do, you, how do you go about helping people? How can you be of most help to them? And, of course, coming to the place where you realize that when it comes to trying to help somebody else, and this is the first principle I want to pass on here, and I want to – actually, I should put a little disclaimer here, and I probably should have done this at the beginning of the episode, but everything I'm saying in this podcast is simply and only my take on things. I am not in any way trying or – you know, playing at being a professional uh, counselor or therapist or anything like that, okay? I just, I learned some things and I want to pass some of it on to you guys. And the first thing I want to pass on is that in such a situation where you're dealing with somebody who is really hurting, really in a bad place, really needs your help, um, the first principle is that it's not about you. <laughs> it's about them. And what you think, what your attitudes and ideas and opinions are about that situation don't really matter. They don't matter to that person, and they shouldn't really matter in that situation where you're dealing with them. Um, because your biases, I mean, you're going to have your own biases, your own opinions, your own ideas about things, and they're going to color everything you say and do because that's how we 
are. That's how we operate. There is no objective, fully rational human being. So there is really no way to step out of your bias, but there is a way to recognize your bias and tap it down and just use um, the best possible techniques and methods and, and questioning and things like that you can to, to help somebody out. Now, I'm not going to go here into, you know, the whole model and all that. I'm not trying to teach another seminar here on my podcast. I just wanted to pass on some things I found useful and helpful, and that was that was one of them. Um, this is a very, very broad topic, and I am putting links to two places on the show notes here. One of them is um, some information about something called ASSIST, A-S-I-S-T, and specifically ASSIST 11. This is from the Living Works website. This was the model, the ASSIST 11 program was what I was doing. The model is called PAL. It stands for Pathway for Assisting Life, PAL. And um, and like I said, I'm not going to get into what the model is or how it works or anything here particularly. You can, you can look that up online, and I encourage you to do so if you're interested. So before we get into talking any more about models or techniques or advice or anything like that, first let's, let's take a good hard look at this subject because you might not be aware of the severity and broadness of this topic. I mean, suicide is something that touches everyone. Um, I, you know, I, I, I would say uh, it would be amazing if it didn't touch every single person's life at some point during their life. The, the statistics on this are, are really quite disturbing. Every 40 seconds somewhere in the world, someone is suiciding. Um, and we say, by the way, uh, that they suicide or they are, you know, they suicided. We don't, apparently it's not in vogue or, or wanted anymore to say committed suicide. That makes it a little harsher and, and more accusatory. Um, all right, so let's take a look at a couple statistics here. According to the National Institute of Mental Health and the CDC, and I got all of these from the uh, SAFE, sorry, SAVE, S-A-V-E dot org website. Uh, Suicide Awareness Voices of Education is what uh, the SAVE stands for. This website is a wealth of information on this topic. So let's go over a couple of these. First off, one in 100,000 children ages 10 to 14 die by suicide each year. I was shocked at such a young age, and I was told by uh, others at the workshop that who are some of whom were involved in the teaching profession, and they were teaching very young children who had sometimes voiced that they didn't want to be around anymore. And it's pretty shocking when you hear something like that come out of a six, seven, or eight-year-old's mouth. Um, seven in 100,000 youth ages 15 to 19 die by suicide each year. 12.7 in 100,000 young adults ages 20 to 24 die by suicide each year. So you can see that as the ages progress, as the age brackets progress from 10 to 14, 15 to 19, 20 to 24, the number of suicides in each group rises. Uh, the prevalence of suicidal thoughts, suicidal planning, and suicide attempts is significantly higher among adults aged 18 to 29 than among adults age 30 plus. Although, there's some interesting statistics later about, um, well, they're right here. Suicide is the third leading cause of death for 15 to 24 year olds in, a, in America, this is. 
Uh, suicide is the fourth leading cause of death for adults ages 18 to 65, according to the CDC. And the highest increase in suicide is in males over 50. They, the number there is 30 per 100,000. Suicide rates for females are highest among those ages 45 to 54. Suicide rates for males are highest among those ages 75 plus. By the, when they're older males, and these are people who have lost life partners or never had them, retirees, uh, 36 per 100,000, according to the CDC, will suicide. Suicide rates among the elderly are highest for those who are divorced or widowed. And only half of all Americans experiencing an episode of major depression receive treatment. Now, this is something I wanted to talk about. People out there are experiencing depression. I have experienced depression. I have experienced major depression. And I'm not ashamed to talk about it. It's not a stigmatized thing to me. I'm not, I don't tell you this as though I'm sharing some secret with you that you know, I don't want you to tell anybody. It happens. It happens every day, all day, to tons and tons of people. And, you know, trying to sweep it under the rug or not talk about it or feel ashamed or stigmatize it is just, at this point, with all the things we know, it's, it's not even inappropriate. It's just destructive to, to people's well-being. We have to bring this out in the open. We have to talk about this. So I am not saying that I have been diagnosed with clinical depression. That's not where I'm at. I have had depressive episodes. And yes, I have had suicidal thoughts at times. Not recently. I actually kind of overcame all of that. But there was a period where I was not doing so great. And I'm, I'm telling you that because you guys know me by listening to me, by seeing me. And I don't think I come across as somebody that you would call depressed or that you would think would ever have necessarily had suicidal thoughts. But I have. And I've used a suicide hotline, and I have been helped by that. In fact, one time, and that was all I needed. I needed somebody to talk to. I needed somebody who would listen to me and not judge me. And I just couldn't get that at that time from the people who were around me. And this was, by the way, way before I was married. <laughs> okay. So... Only half of all Americans experiencing an episode of major depression receive treatment. So I'm just going to say right now, for those of you who are listening out there, if, if you have depressive episodes, and I don't just mean some regular day-to-day -day mood swings, but I'm talking about real depression, and it's not hard to figure out because there's all kinds of things, resources online to read or educate yourself on this topic, and you can see for yourself through a self-assessment, hey, how you doing? And if you can use some help with this or if you have episodes like that, reach out and get some assistance, you know, because here's the next key statistic for that. 80 to 90% of people that seek treatment for depression are treated successfully using therapy and or medication. So 80 to 90% of the people who actually try to get some help get some help. It is possible that, you know, to feel better. Uh, there are lots and lots of coping mechanisms. There are lots and lots of treatments. There's lots and lots of ways of dealing with it. All right. So I thought that was rather, <laughs> rather important statistic. Oh, and then there is the matter of hidden suicides. 
and suicide, you know, attempted suicides. I mean, one suicide, there is one suicide for every estimated 25 suicide attempts. That's quite startling because if you start taking those numbers and extrapolate to those earlier figures I was giving you where, okay, one suicide represents 25 attempts at suicide by people. Okay, so you run those numbers and you get ages 10 to 14, 25 out of 100,000 are attempting suicide, right? I don't even know, 12.7 times 25 uh, for twenty to, for the 20 to 24 age bracket, right? I should have maybe done a little bit of math before I did the podcast here, but you get the idea. Um, the, the causes of a suicide attempt are the same whether you tried it or whether you succeeded at it or not. You, you, you know, you got to that place. So there's a lot more folks out there who might be in a pretty bad spot right now that you might not know anything about um, because you got to look. And then specifically, you have to look for what are called, we, we might have called these in the past warning signs. They're now noted as invitations, uh, is what I learned, because they are an invitation for you to do something, to help, to talk to them. To, to, there's, an, there's an attempt, often, often there are attempts on the part of people who are considering this to try to get some help, to reach out. But their reach is often limited. It's hesitant. It's tentative. It's, it's unsure. They've been batted down so many times or, or their ability to talk or reach out is so limited that, you know, uh, or, this, or it's stigmatized. I mean, there's a thousand reasons to not talk about it. Um, so let's take a look at some of these invitations because I wanted to run some of these by you guys just so you could sort of sort of get the wheels turning as to whether this might be occurring in your environment with people you might know. Uh, so let's see here. We have someone threatening to hurt or kill themselves or talking about wanting to die, um, especially if the person has a weapon or item to hurt themselves with. That, that would be like top of the list, those, you know, hitting that sign. Um, Searching for ways to kill him or herself by seeking access to lethal means, whether it's online or physically in the moment of despair. Someone uh, talking, writing, or posting on social media about death and suicide when these actions are out of the ordinary for the person. Giving away possessions or things that they say they, quote-unquote, don't need anymore, especially when these are valuables or personal keepsakes. Uh, Talking about feeling hopeless or having no purpose. Talking about feeling trapped or being in unbearable pain. Talking about being a burden to others. Increasing the use of alcohol or drugs. Acting anxious, agitated, or reckless. Now, obviously, when I read something like that, that wouldn't be all by itself the only thing that would point you in the direction that this person might be contemplating suicide. It would simply be an invitation or a warning sign, something you would see that you might think, hmm, Maybe I should look more closely. That's what all of these are. None of these are a certain sign. There's plenty of people I know who love talking about death and guns and shooting things and stuff like that who are not suicidal. So you have to, you have to dig in here. These are just invitations. Um, withdrawing or feeling isolated, sleeping too little or too much, showing rage or talking about seeking revenge. I thought that was an interesting one. And displaying extreme mood swings. 
Now, the other thing I wanted to go over real fast here are some of the risk factors. These are things that do not necessarily cause a person to be suicidal all by themselves, but they increase the risk that the person might go there. Okay, some of these might be mental disorders, of course, particularly mood disorders, anxiety disorders, uh, schizophrenia, certain personality disorders. And all of this, by the way, is taken, again, uh, from the uh, save.org website. Alcohol and other substance use disorders, uh, hopelessness, impulsive and or aggressive tendencies, history of trauma or abuse, major physical or chronic illnesses, you can see how that might open up the doorway to thinking, maybe I don't want to deal with this chronic illness anymore. Uh, which, let me finish this and then I'll get on to another thing I want to bring up about that. Previous suicide attempt, uh, family history of suicide, recent job or financial loss, recent loss of relationship, easy access to lethal means. Uh, this is one of the reasons why, statistically speaking, when you have a gun in the house, you have a higher chance of uh, suicide using that gun and succeeding at it because a gun is a very efficient tool for that. And that's no value judgment on a gun. Guns are useful, but guns are also useful for things like this. Uh, let's see here. Local clusters of suicide. Lack of social support and sense of isolation. Stigma associated with asking for help. Lack of health care, especially mental health and substance abuse treatment. Cultural and religious beliefs, such as the belief that suicide is a noble resolution of a personal dilemma. And exposure to others who have died by suicide in real life or via the media and internet. So those are just risk factors. They are not, like I said, every one of those is not in and of itself a clear-cut indication that the person is going to then become suicidal. A person can have a history of trauma or abuse, can feel hopeless, and have aggressive tendencies, and not be in any way, shape, or form suicidal. It's just something to be aware of. And something else about this is that this isn't a matter of when I'm talking about this whole topic, this isn't a matter of having a value judgment placed on this. Your own feelings about it, as I mentioned, really don't matter much when you're dealing with the person who, you, who is suicidal. If you want to assist them, intervene in some way, have that conversation, um, you're going to have to put all your stuff to the side, whether you're for it or against it, whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, whether you think it's a sin uh, against God or whether you think it's no big deal, both ways don't matter. You, again, your thoughts and ideas about this aren't what's at stake here. It's the other person you're trying to help. Um, now, in terms of protective factors, I wanted to go over, in addition to the risk factors, I wanted to also cover some of the protective factors, things that actually will help a person to not go in that direction. Um, of, of suicide, of course. Effective clinical care for mental, physical, and substance use disorders. Uh, easy access to a variety of clinical interventions. Restricted access to highly lethal means of suicide. Strong connections to family and community support. Support through ongoing medical and mental health care relationships. Skills in problem solving, conflict resolution, and handling problems in a nonviolent way. I thought that was interesting. Somebody who has that, that skill set has a less of a tendency. It's, it, it's, it's something that would help to 
bolster their ability to deal with whatever it is that they're dealing with and keep them from contemplating that. And finally, cultural and religious beliefs that discourage suicide and support self-preservation. So those are protective factors. Now, again, though, as a warning here, um, all of these protective factors could exist and a person could still suicide. So none of these are any kind of lock, stock, you know, uh, uh, way of ensuring that there's just no possibility that it's ever going to happen. A person could be getting effective clinical care, could have very good connections with their family, and could be getting good support through their mental health relationships and still suicide. So, um, so there's no guarantees on any of this stuff. And the other thing something that I personally feel on this, and this is, like, this is my own personal opinion, is that in stepping in or deciding to intervene or help somebody with something like this, um, it's not your fault if they go ahead and suicide. You know, at least you tried to help. At least you tried to do something. I mean, obviously, encouraging them to do it wouldn't be helpful. But if you intervene in such a way that you're trying to help them to maybe not do that or maybe see some brighter sides of things or maybe try to lead them in some direction where you can create a turning point where they can stop thinking that way, even just for a day or two, right? I mean, even if you can just get that much done. Um, If you don't succeed at doing that, that's not an excuse to not try, (laughs) Because it's not your fault that, you know, when a person suicides, that's, that's them doing that. That's, you didn't kill them, <laughs> you know. That's not what's going on there. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there because I know that some people are very, very timid, very, very backed off, very, very afraid to try to intervene in somebody else's life or try to step up and do something to try to help somebody else. And I, it's my belief, and I'm saying clearly it is my belief, that um, that there are suicides out there that could have been prevented had somebody stepped up, stepped in, said something, even as light as, hey, man, I see things aren't going so well for you these days. What's up? Or, hey, you want to talk? Even, even just that. You don't even have to lay on them, you know, that you're noticing something weird. You could just, hey, how's it going? What's up? How are you feeling these days? You know, I, anything you want to talk about? I'm, I'm here for you, you know, anything like that. Um, that alone <laughs> might give them the hope and encouragement they need that somebody actually cares and that something, somebody actually wants to listen to what they have to say, you know. Now, how you go about continuing that intervention will depend on your training and education and background. So it's, you know, really in your best interest and everybody else's that you take a few minutes and get yourself a little educated on this, which is why, again, I'm posting the links to the resources on this. Of course, you know, one good piece of advice for this or any sort of, again, negotiation, any kind of like situation where you're going to feel like you need to, um, you know, be on a level playing field with the person you're talking to and you really want them to open up and you really want to hear what they have to say then you have to put yourself in a non-adversarial position, right? Because when you get somebody defensive, you know, again, other parts of their brain start turning on and things get aggressive and and they can get really bad really fast if you're dealing with somebody who is already on the edge and is feeling pretty unstable. So um, so really the, the, you know, the whole goal in 
in talking with them is you know is bringing is 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 bringing things down, chilling things out, and and empathizing with them. You don't have to sympathize with them. You don't have to feel the way they feel, but you got to understand how they feel, and you got to approach that from the point of view that how you feel ain't the important thing here. It's how they feel and how they're doing. That's the important part of the whole conversation. So, all right. So after having gone over all of this, um, like I said, this is not an attempt at, a, at doing a seminar on suicide, but I just wanted to sort of, since it was on my mind and it fit in so closely with all the other things that I talk about, I thought that it would be useful or helpful to do an episode on this. Um, there, the only call to action that I really have here for you guys as my listeners or viewers is I would ask that you take a little assessment of the people around you in your life. How are they doing? You know, how are your friends? How's your family? How's your spouse? How's your kids? How are your parents? You know, how, how are they doing? Are you in touch with them? Are you in touch with them as much as you want to be? Are you in touch with them as much as they want you to be? And should you be? And maybe um, there's some folks you should reach out to. You know, maybe there's some people even at your workplace who might be showing signs or, uh, or invitations of, you know, ask uh, requests for help. And like I said, sometimes the smallest gesture can make a world of difference to somebody when they're in a bad place. So, um, so maybe after listening to this podcast, take a few moments, think about the people in your life, think about how they're doing, think about how you're doing also. You know, and if you feel like maybe you could use some help, reach out, get some. You know, there are so many resources out there. They are, again, linked on the notes to this podcast. All right, guys, I guess that's pretty much everything I have to say this week. I really want to thank you guys for taking the time to listen to me wander about here on all of this, um, give you a little bit of inside in info on what's background info on what's going on with me and, and my life and my research here and where this is taking me. And I hope that this will continue to move forward in this way, that I can continue to offer resources and um, just general Common sense advice is really all I'm trying to trying to do here, but my common sense is trying to be based in solid science and reason and effective means of getting things done or, you know, doing interventions and that kind of thing. So I hope this was useful to you. Thank you very much for listening, uh, and I will see you guys next week. Please leave any questions, comments, or feedback in the comments section on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.